Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 12 of Revelation, recognizing that Satan is already a defeated foe and answering the call for us to die to self. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Praise the Lord. Let's pick up this morning. Let's read um, uh, chapter 12. Let's read for context, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his time, he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. We looked at that verse last week. We, we took that verse apart. And of course, it is the, the culmination of this discussion that's happening about this dragon who we know to be whom? Satan, right? It's a sp- symbolically speaking of Satan. And, and of course, the woman symbolically speaking of Israel, right? And it becomes clear, doesn't it? I mean, the scripture itself really lays it out for us and defines it for us. I just had a conversation with somebody this week. He said, you know, for years you've been telling us that scripture interprets scripture. And he said, I never realized it as clearly until we got to this passage. 
because we see that and we see these things. If we look through the scriptures, we find the answers to what these things are. And as I told you guys, when we started this chapter, this is where it really starts getting symbolic. And unfortunately, a lot of times people either go the two extremes where, where, where symbolism is in everything. And of course, out of that symbolism, they create their own ideas about what it means. And then the other extreme is there's nothing symbolic in the scriptures. Well, well, neither are, are completely true. You know, there is symbolism in the scripture, but, but we only look at symbolism when the scripture itself gives us the sense that, that the author at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is speaking symbolically. And we know that here. We know because John pretty much laid that out for us, that he was giving us a picture that was speaking of real world realities that will one day come. And so here we're dealing with Satan. We're dealing with Satan's desire to destroy the child who was Jesus, right? The Messiah. And he sought to do that throughout history. He continues to seek to do that, but also his desire to destroy the woman, which is Israel, because if he can negate Israel, well, then he negates the promise of God. He negates the reliability of God. And where does that leave us? If God not, if he's not true to his word, then you and I don't have any confidence to be able to stand upon the promises that he's made to us as well. And so we've seen that unfolding in here. But then in verse 10, we saw this, this battle that takes place between that that begins to happen and 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 Satan is cast out of heaven and of course in this moment some people believe that this has already come to pass that that happened when Satan fell but as I shared with you guys last week scripturally I don't think that holds water this is a future day we know that Satan still has access into heaven we know it just from the book of Job alone because he came in and he he presents and 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 accused you know Job but he also accused God in the process but there is a day coming, and this verse will come to pass, when Satan will literally be cast down to the earth. And I believe it's in that moment that we see the rise that we'll see in chapter 13 of Antichrist, and where he'll take up his residence in that human person that will be, uh, be leading the world in that day. But as we dealt with this, we now come to, to verse 11. It says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. It's interesting in, in this battle that takes place, and really this is talking now about the redeemed, the redeemed and their victory over Satan. And, and, and this proclamation makes clear that the victory that the redeemed have achieved over Satan isn't a result of, of their own strength or their own abilities on their part, but it's the result of three things alone. Number one, it's the result of the blood of the Lamb. It's the result of the blood of the Lamb. In other words, it's the power of Jesus's blood that will give them victory over him. It's what gives us victory over him. This is the only way to effectively deal with Satan. It's the only way. It's only by Jesus's blood that the yoke of Satan's oppression and bondage in your life can ultimately be broken. There's no other way. There's nothing else that you can do to stop him. You can struggle against them all you want. You can apply all kinds of spiritual formulas if you want but you will never stop him through these fleshly means. And they are fleshly means. You won't stop his lies. You won't stop his accusations. You won't stop his deceptions. And you will not free yourself from his yoke of bondage apart from the power found in Jesus' blood alone. 
There's no other way to break the hold that he tries to exert over your life because the simple truth is that you and I do not have what it takes to rid ourselves and to free ourselves of Satan and to achieve victory over him. Now, I'm not saying that we as Christians haven't been given a great deal of spiritual power over the hosts of evil and and over the dominions that they try to establish in our lives and the strongholds. I firmly believe the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 4 and 5, where it tells us this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds. Do you have strongholds going on in your life? Many people do. Habitual sin that they just can't seem to break free of. Things that are happening in their life. The the weapons, we've been given weapons. They're not carnal weapons, but we've been given weapons for the pulling down of strongholds and for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I firmly believe that verse. I have experienced that verse in my own life. And, and have found victory over things that, that I struggled against in my own strength and my own power to overcome and never could. But I learned that there are weapons that God has provided so that we can win this spiritual fight that we're in. But this verse clearly tells us that the source of power for that spiritual victory, the weapons of our warfare, are mighty in God. It doesn't say it's mighty in us. It's mighty in God. And they aren't dependent on our inherent spirituality or our spiritual efforts, nor are they based on any spiritual formulas or mantras that we might apply. And by the way, that that is an area of Christianity that I grew up in. There was a formula for everything. And if you just followed the formula, well, everything was going to get taken care of. You You could command Satan out with your little formula and your little rain dance, and it would all be good. And you know what? I struggled with strongholds in my life that never got broken. Look, they're mighty. These things that we've been given, they're mighty because of the power of God that, that, that's established by and found in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. That's why they're mighty. Your ability to deal with these evil things has nothing to do with your spirituality, but it has all to do with Jesus' spirituality, who he is and what he's done. It, 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 it's, it's, it's by the shedding of his blood, his own blood, that Jesus effectively dealt with our enemies on our behalf. He did it for us, just as Colossians 2.15 clearly tells us. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, you know, in it. I, I, how many times have we seen Christians who seem to revel in their public spectacle of dealing with these things. But when I look at my scripture, it says that he's the one that made a public spectacle of them on our behalf. And just as Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 also so clearly tells us, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death... You see, that implication of through death is his shed blood, his broken body. Through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Boy, it doesn't get any clearer than that. 
It's Jesus' blood alone that defeats the enemy, not anything else that we can bring to the fight. So look to Jesus alone. And, and I rest in, and, and, and let's all rest in the power of his blood for dealing with these evil things. Always keep in mind that it's only by his blood that you will effectively overcome Satan and his demonic hosts when they attempt to attack your life. That's how it works. And so we see it here. And, and let me clarify something important at this point, something that I should have probably clarified earlier in the discussion. But when we talk about relying on the power of Jesus's blood, we're not talking about some, again, using some mystical words or formula to achieve victory over these satanic things. It's not just that we utter some formulated words to, to invoke the blood of Jesus, that it's going to yield some supernatural effect if we get those words right. You know, again, there are people who seem to believe this, and they've come to all sorts of phrases, pet, pet phrases that they use, that they incorporate, you know, Jesus's blood into some kind of mystical incantation, thinking there's power in the words. There is no power in the words, but there's power in his blood. There's no power in the words. There's power in his blood. What I'm saying and what the scripture is saying is that the power is found in the spiritual implications associated with Jesus's blood. And when these redeemed saints here in verse 11 say, by the blood, what they're emphasizing is the death of Jesus. The blood speaks of his death. The reference to his blood is done to remind us and to emphasize that Jesus didn't only suffer on that cross but that he died on that cross. And, and when they say of the lamb, they're emphasizing the substitutionary work that Jesus did as he hung upon the cross. They're calling to mind and emphasizing that like the Passover lamb, Jesus became the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And that as we place our faith in him, as we, as we look to his death and sacrifice alone, that gets appropriated to our lives. The victory that he achieved gets appropriated to our lives. Now, you might ask, what's this have to do with breaking the hold Satan has over us? How, how does the blood of the lamb conquer Satan in the life of the believer? How does, how does the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute bring victory for us over Satan? I'll answer those questions by quoting something that Spurgeon said. He says it works out in three ways. It works first because his victory is our victory. Because Jesus' victory is our victory. First, you are to regard Satan this day as being already literally and truly overcome through the death of the Lord Jesus. Satan is already a vanquished enemy. He's already a vanquished enemy. By faith, grasp your Lord's victory as your own since he triumphed in your nature and on your behalf. Come, my soul, thou hast conquered Satan by thy Lord's victory. Wilt thou not be brave enough to fight a vanquished foe and trample down the enemy whom the Lord has already thrust down? Thou needest not be afraid, but say, thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? When Satan comes knocking at my door, when the demons come knocking at my mind and at my life, I remind them of who I am in Christ. And I remind them of what Christ has done for me. He has secured the victory for me. His victory is my victory. It's your victory. Second, Spurgeon says it works because the work of Jesus on the cross for us is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, just as we're told in Romans 5, 8. 
It's a constant remembrance of the blood of the Lamb that assures us that every fear Satan whispers into our mind is a lie. And when the enemy comes and he lies to you, remember what Jesus did for you. Remember how he hung upon that cross for you. Remember how the scriptures foretold that the Messiah would come and that he would do this for you. And as you remember that, I promise you, Satan and his minions, they begin to slink away because they realize you've grabbed hold of the truth that counters the lies that they're speaking into your life. Third, it works because the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute purchases us as God's personal property, and this makes us want to live unto God. If anything can make a man holy, it is a firm faith in the atoning sacrifice, Spurgeon says. When a man knows that Jesus died for him, he feels that he is not his own, but bought with a price, and therefore he must live unto him that died for him and rose again. You see? Therefore, Spurgeon goes on to say, we use the blood of the lamb in spiritual warfare, not as a Christian abracadabra, as if chanting the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus could keep Satan away like garlic is said to keep away vampires, but rather our understanding, our apprehension, our focus, may I say our obsession with the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute wins the battle. The precious blood of Jesus is not meant for us merely to admire and exhibit We must not be content to talk about it and extol it and do nothing with it, but we are to use it in the great crusade against unholiness and unrighteousness till it is said of us, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. This precious blood is to be used for overcoming and consequently for holy warfare. We dishonor it if we do not use it to that end. The dogs of hell know the dread name which makes him lie down. We must confront him with the authority and especially with the atonement of the Lamb of God. Do you guys get that? Do you get it? These saints in heaven, they do. They get it, and they proclaim this truth of Jesus' blood being the very source of their victory over Satan. And so, too, this can and it should be the very source of our victory over him as well in the life that we're living. So if you're tired of Satan's lies like I am, I am just tired of it all. You know, we talk about fake news. Well, I got news for you. There's fake lies coming out. I mean, well, fake stuff coming out of Satan all the time. You know, and you're tired of his accusations against you, tired of being deceived by him, tired of finding yourself dogged by him and bondage to him in so many ways in your life, then quit trying to beat him up in your own spiritual strength. Quit trying to beat him up in your own spiritual strength and get everything in your life under the blood of Jesus. Because scripture is clear that if you want to defeat Satan, this is the way you do it. It is by the blood of the lamb that we achieve victory over him. Amen. Secondly, John tells us that these saints are proclaiming that they've achieved victory over Satan by the word of their testimony. By the word of their testimony. And what is the word of their testimony? It's, it's two things, really. First and foremost, it's Jesus. Jesus is the word of the testimony. He is quite literally the word of their testimony. It's their testimony of and for Jesus that's at the heart of that. It's how he rescued them, how he delivered them, how he protected them, how he sustained them. Their testimony is of Jesus as his redemptive work in their lives. It's the testimony that he's given each and every one of them and to teach and, and every one of us who've, who've trusted in him by faith. We too have that testimony that we can declare. It's ultimately this testimony that will shut the mouth of the enemy and eventually defeat him. Watch how fast the enemy flees when you start talking about Jesus. Watch how fast 
You know, you can see it sometimes with people, not that people are the enemy, not that people are Satan, but sometimes when people will come and they're just, you know, they don't know the Lord and it's just getting dark and so dark. Throw the name of Jesus in the equation and watch what happens. (laughs) If the conversations don't stop, they may just plain leave the room. You can empty a room with the name of Jesus because the enemy can't stand it. He can't stand the name of Jesus. He can't handle being around the name of Jesus. There, There used to be this little chorus we used to sing years ago. You remember this song? In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. Sing it if you know it. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Satan will have to flee. Who can tell what God can do? Who can tell of his love for you? In the name of we have the victory. You guys sound good. Some of you are being dated by this song, though, right? It's old. It's old. Me too. You know, I remember this is probably one of the first courses I learned as a Christian back in the 70s. But you know what? There's tremendous spiritual truth in that little song. Maybe we should sing it more often. There's tremendous spiritual truth in that. It is powerfully true that as we proclaim the name of Jesus, as we testify of him and of his power in our lives, we powerfully defeat the enemy in the process. Why? Because he can't contend against our testimony. There's nothing he can say to that. He can try to lie against it, but the truth in itself is so glaringly evident that he can't stand up against it. It speaks powerfully of the victory that Jesus has given over him, you see. And and here, I think, is the problem for a lot of Christians today. The reason why so many are so often defeated by the enemy in their lives, because most of the time what's on their minds and flowing off their lips isn't a testimony about Jesus, but it's, it's a testimony about all kinds of other stuff and, and oftentimes ungodly stuff. In fact, for a lot of people, their testimony about Jesus is, is reserved for Sunday mornings only. You know, when, when they're in church, they'll talk about Jesus, but then the rest of the week, you wouldn't even know that they know him. Many of those conversations not only prove useless in defeating the enemy, but they even open the door for him to enter in to their lives in so many ways. Listen, when you start thinking about and talking about Jesus more and more, making him the focus of your thoughts and your conversations, you're going to find that the enemy's influence over your life, it's going to begin to diminish. It's going to begin to diminish. Remember, belief in Jesus and the power of his blood is only part of what's needed to win the battle. And this passage is making clear that it also needs to be expressed. Not just knowing about his blood, but expressing it. Saying it with our lips. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. 2 Corinthians 4.13, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up with Jesus and will present us with you. For Paul, talking about Jesus was the natural outworking of his faith in him. And as it should be for us, as it should be for you and me, and as we speak about and we testify of Jesus and of his power in our lives, the enemy will more and more be defeated. He absolutely will. You know, I have to tell you, one of the most exciting things to me is when I meet a a young Christian, a young believer, someone who's just put their faith in in Christ, and man, they just can't stop talking about him. 
They can't stop. They, not talking about their experience, not talking about the church they went to, not talking about all the religious stuff, even some of the good spiritual stuff, but just talking about Jesus. Can't stop talking about Jesus. I, I think there's power in that. And I look at that young believer and I think to myself, you know what, there's one who's not going to find himself in chains or herself in chains to the enemy because they've already gotten the real secret to freedom. And that's to talk about Christ. We're to profess him with our lips, you see. But I also believe that there's another aspect to the word of their testimony that I think we should note. I believe that the word they spoke that defeated the enemy was more than just their testimony about Jesus, but it was also their use of the word of God itself. It's the use of the word of God itself. Ephesians 6 is clear that the word of God is one of the chief weapons that you and I have been given to wage this spiritual fight that we're in. Here's what it says, Ephesians 6:13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God, the word of God. You know, the writer to Hebrews makes the same point, right? Hebrews 4.12, you guys know this verse. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, even Jesus even Jesus knew this and used the word of God for this purpose. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did he fight back? Did he argue with him? Did he just cast him down? Did he do that? No, you know what he did? He used the word of God and he countered the untruths and the twisted nature by which Satan was using the word, the impartial verses that he'd throw at him. Jesus just spoke the word of God right back to him. Every evil temptation that Satan brought to him, Jesus countered by quoting the word of God to him. And scripture tells us that after Jesus did this, guess what Satan did? He left. He left. So you see, the word of God is in part the word of their testimony that's going to enable them to overcome Satan in that day. It will be the sword that these redeemed saints will use to wage warfare against him. And it's the testimony of the word. I'm just telling you, it's the testimony of the word that will enable you to defeat him as well. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.